So I get a, we a weekly email from Voice of the Martyrs, which is a great organization, just trying to keep track of what's going on with the global church. And <clears throat> this is just this week's email. On January 21st, Christine Wonkin, who is a 26-year-old young woman, was kidnapped by Fulani Islamic militants. On January 20th, a 25-year-old young man was killed by the same militant group for his faith. On January 20th as well, Pastor Luan Andimi was kidnapped and killed by another terrorist cell, Boko Haram. And on January 9th, a group of Christian university students were kidnapped. One was killed and that killing was broadcast by video across the country. That's one week's email. We have brothers and sisters all over this world who are under immense persecution. What I just read to you is not uncommon. In fact, it's the normal reality of every week in our world somewhere. Somewhere in our world every week, brothers and sisters are put under the knife for their faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus in this text was saying to his disciples and to all who would become his followers afterwards, I need to prepare you for persecution. In chapter 16, verse one, he said, I'm saying these things to you so that you won't fall away. He has in mind there what John says in 1 John chapter two, when he says, those who went out from us, went out from us because they weren't among us. They weren't one of us. In other words, he doesn't want the disciples or anyone else to be in the place where it would be revealed through persecution and suffering that when it comes to them, that what would be revealed is that they were never truly among those who worshiped Christ, who belonged to him because persecution revealed it. He wants them to be steadfast and to endure. And so he says in this text as he's preparing them for his departure, I need you to understand that persecution is going to be the reality of the Christian life. It is going to be the reality of the Christian life. That's what Jesus is up to here. He's preparing them. And can I just say to you, Lord, help me as your pastor if I don't prepare you. We have not gathered here today to listen to a nice speech or a nice talk. We haven't gathered to sing some music that we like. We've gathered because we are the family of God and we live in a world that we are called to, sent to, in great love to witness to the work of Jesus. And as we go, we will experience persecution. And we have to be prepared. Now this text essentially begs us to ask, two, ask a question that has two answers. The question is this, what should a Christian expect while living in the world? What should be our expectation as followers of Jesus when we live in the world? And the answer is twofold. The first is less encouraging. It's persecution. That's pretty obvious from what we just read. But the second that was kind of slipped in there and it's so gracious and good of the Lord to put it there is that we should also expect to be immensely effective in witness for him. In fact, I want to say, and I don't know that I can prove it from this text specifically, but God bringing those two things together, Jesus bringing those two things together, I want to say is meant to encourage us to think as the, person, as the persecution increases, so will the effectiveness of our witness. That those will go together. Those are the two answers to that question. What should a Christian expect in this life? And number one is persecution. And number two is effective witness. Now, let me just pause here for a second because I've been wrestling with this all week long. I read this text and I think to myself, I haven't experienced any persecution for following Jesus this week, much less the month before that. And so that question comes to me and I'm guessing you might feel the same way. And so that we read this question, we go, well, gosh, texts like 2 Timothy chapter two, Paul says to Timothy, anyone who, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
I think to myself, well, how does that text apply? When I find myself persecuted so little, so rarely, what, what do we do with that as a church? We've gathered here in this nice big sanctuary with this nice comfortable air conditioning or heating or whatever's on today. We've gathered in such comfort. No one, you probably didn't need to hide the fact that you were coming to church today from anybody. You probably didn't think to yourself, this could be really dangerous for me. Our persecution is so seldom, it's so rare. And to be honest, we don't flex these muscles very much. We have brothers and sisters who are strong in this way because every day they endure persecution. Every day they are under threat. Every day it's changed. I've been to places around the world, the Middle East and China and different parts of the, of, of the continent, of the, of the globe, excuse me, where every day the reality for our brothers and sisters that I've spent time with in those places is that they have to be very careful what they say and who they say it to. It may very well cost them their life. And for some, it absolutely has. That's their daily reality. So I, can I share with you a few thoughts about how we engage this as those who live under very little persecution, if we're honest. And, and I hope that what I can, if you have a persecution complex as a believer living here in America, can I just say to you that you need to get rid of that because that's preventing you from really being ready if it should come. We are not a persecuted people. Now it's possible that in, we are very clearly living in the rise of secularism in our society and persecution may very well come and it may be persecution of a very pertinent kind. And perhaps there are hints of it even now. But for the most part, we don't understand persecution or live underneath it. Now, a couple thoughts about that. So what do we do with this? We come across it. Is it just that we're supposed to feel guilty or seek out persecution or do something more? I don't think so. Let me give you a few thoughts. The first thought is we should ask ourselves if we have shrunk back from bearing witness to Christ and thereby avoided persecution. There's not a lot of persecution for bearing witness to Christ, but you may be rejected. You may lose your job. You may encounter some rejection from some social group that you would love to be a part of. You might find yourself perhaps ostracized in your neighborhood. That's possible. I would call that a pretty light type of persecution, to be honest. But we should ask ourselves if we've shrunk back from bearing witness and thereby avoided persecution. It's exactly what Christ is trying to keep us from doing here in this text. We should take the long view and remember that we are part of a people forged and grown in persecution. We have in front of us the elements today that remind us that our faith rests upon something that was started by persecution. And the history of the church, we are a part of a group, group of people who historically have been persecuted. And to see our place within that, perhaps in this era, in this day, in this place where we live, our persecution is not a daily reality for us, but we no less are a part of a group of people who have endured persecution. And as a part of that group of people over a long period of history, we have a role, we have a job to do as a part of that group of people. Particularly, we might think about providing resources to those who are under persecution as those who are not under it. We should hear it as a call to pray for then and go to, with our resources, as I just said, our brothers and sisters who are persecuted now. This text is a call to pray, if nothing else. Do you hear me? It's a call to pray. Can I, I'll just point you to the same resource I pointed to you to a bunch of times. Operation World is an organization. They have a book, Praying for the World, is, is what it's called. Pray for the World by Operation World is the name of the organization. 
takes you to every country of the world, day by day, throughout the year. It's my regular habit to move through this book each year and to pray for the countries that it lists. And it gives you how to pray for them. And you will encounter the persecuted church in this book. Begin to pray for them. Just make it your habit to say, our brothers and sisters are in need of being taken before the throne of God. This next one you might not expect me to say, but I actually, here's something else I think as we come to this text that we should feel. We should feel thankful. We should feel thankful. It's not outside God's sovereignty that you and I are not under persecution. The point is not feel guilty that you don't live in a place where you're persecuted. That's not the point of today. We should be glad and thankful that we live in a society that has given us the freedom to worship and to gather and to proclaim the name of Jesus and to not be under threat of being thrown in jail or killed for doing that. That's something to be thankful for, yes? You should be thankful for that. Not feel guilty for it. Be glad for it. And even as we're thankful, can I say this? Even as we're thankful, uh, we should not feel guilty about that. It should remind us, then the next thing I would say, it should remind us, this type of text, that there is a difference between constitutional rights and divine rights. Those are two different things. Here's what I mean by that. We live in a country where we have a constitutional right to worship God. I'm really glad for that. And in fact, we should engage in the political sphere in such a way that we maintain those rights and try and argue for those rights and approach the democratic process in a way that enables us to continue to operate with the freedom that we have to worship. We should absolutely do that. Yes, somebody say amen to that. We should absolutely do that. But from what I just read in this text, do you understand that it's not a divine right that we are not persecuted? Should the laws of our land change? Should we come underneath persecution and with the rise of secularism, it seems somewhat likely with that as a reality and as, as a possible reality of our future, do you understand that we have no divine right to not suffer? We have no divine right to not be persecuted. If our brothers and sisters have been in persecution and that should come to us, we should not act entitled to not suffer and to not be persecuted. That's a very important preparation then for the work that God gives us to do. And secondly there, I'll say this, when it comes to constitutional rights and divine rights, can I remind us that no follower of Jesus can ever excuse unrighteous means in order to accomplish righteous ends. You cannot associate with unrighteous means in the name of accomplishing a righteous end. You be righteous and let God control what happens. Be righteous and associate with righteousness. Represent Jesus in every action, in every deed, in every association. And then the last thing is that we should prepare ourselves. We should prepare ourselves. My understanding of the scriptures as we get into the book of Revelation is that it's very likely that we will be here when persecution rises, when we get close to the coming of Jesus, persecution will come, we're told. It will intensify, it will grow. I think it's very likely that we will be here for that. And so we need to be prepared. Whether that will come in our lifetime or not, we do not know when the return of Christ will come. But we should also be prepared because we live in a society that is increasingly moving towards the worship of secular things and not sacred things. And in living in that kind of society, it is undoubted that persecution will come. I think it will look different than the persecution our brothers and sisters endure in places like Jordan, in places like Syria, in places like China. But no doubt, I think it will come. And if it comes, we need to be prepared. And so that's my job today is to help prepare you. It's a sobering text, yes? 
It's a sobering text. It really kind of puts away that idea Jesus just wants us to be healthy and wealthy, doesn't it? That's silliness. Put that away. Silliness. So the two things, let's talk about each of them. The first is persecution. The second is effective witness. So the persecution that we see here as we just read through the text is that Jesus essentially paints this pattern. He says, look, the world hated me, so it's gonna hate you. And what hatred leads to is persecution. So you can expect that. If it persecuted me, it's gonna persecute you. Our affiliation with Jesus means persecution. So we have to ask the question, what is it about, what is it about following Jesus that causes the world to persecute? Let's define then what we mean by the world. That's the first thing we have to do. So when John, in his gospel, uses that term, the world, and Jesus here is saying, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Well, who is the world? Is he just talking about random person on the street? When John uses the phrase, the world, he means it this way. In the same way that the kingdom of God is the place where God's rule and reign are evident and present, The world is the place that is the sphere, the the place of operation of rebellion against God. That since the fall, the world has now become a place ruled and reigned over by rebellion against God. That's That's the key mark of what John is referring to when he talks about the world. Now, all of us are born into a world in rebellion against God and we ourselves have been in rebellion against God, yes? And so when Jesus says, I have chosen you out of that world. He's saying, I've taken you out of this sphere of rebellion against God where you are a part of this cosmos, this place where everyone in it and everything in it was thumbing its nose at God and an act of rebellion against him. And I've taken you out of that. And I've made you now a citizen of a new place. I've put you in a new sphere, in a new kingdom, a place now not in rebellion against God, but in submission to God. A place that doesn't hate him, but loves him. And you've been rescued from your hatred toward him into love for him. Do you know that every believer, if you're not a believer here, no believer thinks that we were so wonderful and so wise that somehow we chose that we should stop rebelling against God and start loving him. He rescued us. He broke us down. He showed us his love and his mercy and it called us into his eternal kingdom. All we did was respond. That's all we did. And we didn't do that because we were so wise. We did it because the spirit grabbed hold of us and drew us. That's all that has happened to us. We would invite you to come into, leave the sphere of rebellion and come into the sphere of submission. There's joy in this sphere. There's life in this sphere. There's hope in this sphere. There's peace in this sphere. It's new and fresh and good. Now, that being the case, here's a couple things. The main point that Jesus is getting at when he says the world hates you, if it hates you because it's an act of rebellion against God, then here's the bottom line. It's saying that the persecution comes not for sociological reasons, but for theological reasons. Let me explain what I mean by that. A sociological reason for people to hate believers would be, gosh, I do not like the kind of laws that they want to pass. Or I do not like the way they think about this subject or that subject. Or I do not like this thing or that thing about them. To be honest, sometimes we're annoying, okay? So there might be sociological reasons why you could imagine people would go, I don't like those people. And I I kind of want to work against them. I don't like them. But none of that is really the reason why Jesus is saying here, you'll be persecuted. He's saying you'll be persecuted not for sociological reasons, but for theological reasons. In other words, because of who you worship. 
He's saying the world worships something other than God. They're in rebellion against God. So there's a thousand other gods that they would worship. In our society, it's typically self. Where we are, where we live, it's typically the self that we worship. I'm in charge, my autonomy, no one tell me who else can worship. In other societies, it's different gods, but the point remains that whatever you worship will set the values by which you live. Whatever you worship will set the values by which you live. So if the world worships self or any other false God, that false God or the self sets the values by which they live. If we have been taken out of that sphere and put into another sphere where we worship the king who reigns, who is the creator, then all of our values are derived from what? From that God whom we worship. Therefore, there will always be things that we will be opposed to the world in because we derive our values from this God and they derive their values from their God. There's no getting around it. What Jesus is ultimately saying is you will never avoid persecution if you follow me because you worship something different than what the world worships. So can I just tell you that message number one kind of here for us is I think sometimes we in the church think we'll be so nice and so gracious and so humble in the way that we argue for the values that we have, which should we be all those things? Please somebody say yes. Yeah, absolutely. Gracious and humble and wise and godly and great listeners. We should be all those things. And I think that we think that if we're all those things that the world will look at us and go, well, I disagree, but they're just so nice. They're not gonna do that. What this text is telling us is you be as nice as you want. At the end of the day, you will be persecuted because you worship something different than what they worship. And they are aligned in worship. The world is aligned in worship to the God it chooses, whether it be self or any other God. And in alignment, they, are, they cannot abide someone who rejects that God and his system. Now, they may not even acknowledge that it's a God, but it's a God, rest assured. Now, that being the case, so if we can get it out of our minds that that's the case, here's two things this text tells us about why that persecution comes from worshiping a different object than the world worships. The world worships this God or these sets of gods. We worship this. It creates a different value system. That's where the persecution comes from. So there's two specific elements here that he points out about that. So the question is, why does worshiping different gods, why does that lead to persecution? And here's what he says. In verse 19, you see the first thing. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. There's the key phrase. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So in other words, what he's saying is, you were in the world, right? And the world would have loved you had you stayed in the world, had you stayed in its value system, had you given sort of affirmation to, yes, this is good and right. But when he chose us out of the world, he made us citizens of a new place. And by doing that now, there will always be things as citizens of a new kingdom that we can no longer affirm from our old kingdom. We can no longer affirm them and we can no longer participate in them. The most obvious one in our sector, in our society is sexuality. It is the area that I think, in particular, younger generation, Messiah students, where are you? High school students, okay? I just wanna tell you, you it, this, is, this is it. This is ground zero. As the church, we can never affirm anything other than the sexual practice 
of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That's just it. That's what the Bible speaks to. It's what it affirms. It's what it teaches. And it's beautiful and it's life-giving and it's so joy-filled. And man, if I had an hour with you here, I would just spend the next 30 minutes talking about the covenant and why you don't have sex outside of that covenant and how good it is. I feel like I have this conversation once a week, okay? Maybe we'll just have a session in my office. Anyone who wants to come, show up, okay? It's so rich, but the world does not see it as beautiful. Because when you worship self, then, there's, then your God tells you no one should deny me anything. And sexuality is so closely knit to who we are, to who we're designed to be, that it's the place where we're least willing to have any boundaries placed upon us least willing to have any boundaries placed upon us. I, I just think it's probably ground zero for this conversation for the rising generation. And can I tell you something? If you're gonna speak what the scriptures speak is true, you're not gonna be able to affirm things the world is gonna require you to affirm in order to be accepted in the world. You're not gonna be able to do it. There's gonna be a cost to that. You should be gracious, you should be loving, but there will be a cost if you won't affirm. And can I just say too, I know within the church, our sexual practices look a lot like the world's right now. They look a lot like the world's. And I don't say that to shame anybody. I say that to, to tell you, you need the righteousness of Christ on your sex lives. Sex was made for the covenant of marriage because it's made to represent the covenant that you have with God. And you take it outside that covenant, it's like fire in your living room. It will burn the place down. You keep it in the fireplace, in the covenant, it is warmth and life and joy. It restores, it renews covenant. It seals the covenant of marriage. It renews the covenant of marriage when you partake of it with your spouse. Mind you, it's you and me and no one else. I want all right, I'll say it this way, because you'll remember it. I want you to have maximum sex. <laughs> True. The church should be the least prude people on the planet. We should have sex and we should have a lot of it. But we, don't get silly on me. I'm being serious, I'm, Here's the thing is you, you start practicing things that aren't biblical because you think God is trying to keep something good from you. That's it, that's it. You think God is trying to keep something good from you and he is not. He is trying to give you a, the best version of something. Keep it in the covenant, practice it in the covenant and you will find life and you will find joy. But you cannot, you cannot partake of sexual practices that dishonor God and are not righteous and then somehow say to the world that its practices don't represent goodness and holiness and righteousness. It's hypocritical. You can't do it. And you will bow and you will bend to the pressures of the world and their version of sexuality. You will if you are not righteous in that area. Does that make sense? You will bow and bend because you'll know in your heart of hearts that you've already bowed and bent 
He's not keeping something from you. He is promising you something so good. So wait for it. Wait for it. Husbands, be faithful to your wives. That other woman, she is not for you. She is death. Your wife is life. Wives, that other man, he is not for you. He is death. And your husband is life. You maintain your covenant. You keep it. You fight for it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Oh, that we would be righteous. That we would be righteous. It will bear fruit in season, in due season. It will bear fruit. So wait for it. All right, that's like five extra minutes of something I didn't even plan. Sorry. <laughs> Gotta figure out where to cut now. Let's do this. The second thing that we see, the second thing that we see, okay, if the first reason that we're persecuted is because we're citizens of a new place so we can't affirm the things that are citizens of the old place, we've essentially committed treason against our old citizenship, right? You know, you can lose your U.S. citizenship for committing treason, you know that? We've lost our citizenship in the world. We've lost it. We committed treason. We are actively trying to subvert the old kingdom that we lived in. We don't want it anymore and we want it to be broken down because we want the kingdom of righteousness and light and peace. We want the kingdom of heaven. That's who we belong to now. We're chosen out. Now the next thing he says is this, in verse 22. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, so he's talking about his words, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now he doesn't mean they literally weren't guilty. All humanity is guilty. We know that from the scriptures. But what he means there is, What he means there is watch what follows, but now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, Jesus, by coming and living on the earth and showing them and speaking to them the words of God is saying, they have no excuse for having seen me and not worshiping me now and not coming to me to be reconciled to God. And then he says the next thing in verse 24. So just skip one verse and go to verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. In other words, what he's getting at there is this. The whole gospel of John has been set up around what? The words and the works of Jesus. John has said, I want you to see his words and I want you to see his works so that in seeing them, you might believe. And in believing, you might have eternal life. Yes, you've been with me through the whole gospel as we've been going through it. That's what he's been saying. And so Jesus here says, I've been speaking the words of God and I've been doing the works of God. And as I've done that, Some people have believed, but many have chosen to reject me. And in rejecting me, they're rejecting God. And when they reject him, they are now guilty for having done so. Now, who wants to have someone still hanging around who who reminds them of their guilt? Does anyone like that? The reason he's saying he is persecuted is because I have displayed to them their guilt and they have uh, struck out in wrath against me because my very presence shows them their guilt. Now follow the logic now. Jesus' presence in his righteousness, representing the Father in his works and his words, revealed the guilt of the world. And so the world struck out and killed him for it. Yes, you follow that? Now, because the world didn't want to be told they were guilty. 
Now Jesus says, you, my followers, are to display my works and my words so that others might see what I'm like. In fact, I've said you and I are one in the way that I'm one with the Father. You are one with me. You abide in me. You represent me. You're the branch tied to the vine that is me. And you are to do the works and the words of Jesus. If he did works and words of the Father and it led to his death because it revealed the guilt of the world, What's gonna happen to us when we reveal the works and words of the Father? Do you see why he's saying we're gonna be persecuted? You are to do, you and I are to do the works of Jesus and carry the words of Jesus everywhere we go. And that will cause people to see their guilt. Some will repent and come to the Father, but some will not. I listened to a pastor tell a story recently. I thought it was so rich. He was talking about being in a country on the other side of the world where they had not heard the gospel And he went into a village and he was sharing through a translator the gospel and the people were responding. They were coming. He was just, he said the Holy Spirit was so present there. It was so obvious. And I was sharing with them just, they never heard the Bible. They never heard the word of God. And I was sharing with them what they could do to come to life in Jesus Christ. And they just came and they sat and they listened and they wanted more and more and more. He said, the translator afterwards, we left. And he said, the translator said, I was so afraid. And he said, why were you so afraid? He said, well, I translated word for word what you said. But a month ago, some of us had gone to that same village and tried to start speaking the gospel. And we'd gotten two two sentences out of our mouth and they chased us out of the village with clubs and swords. I was was really afraid about what was gonna happen. But the Holy Spirit came. He won them. He rescued them. Now, Jesus is saying is here, two reasons persecution comes to the church. Number one, because you're a citizen of a different kingdom who can't affirm the old kingdom and can't practice the things of the old kingdom. Not only that, but you are a reminder to the world of its guilt because you have the righteousness of Christ imparted to you. Now, this is a really key thing to understand. That does not mean that you are always righteous in your actions. Should you strive for righteousness? Yes, doesn't mean you're always perfectly righteous. What it means is you have been marked. The very essence of your being is now the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, poured in to you. That's who you are. So if you just think, well, I'll just hide that righteousness by doing things that are wrong. First of all, bad idea, okay? Second of all, if the righteousness has been imputed to you and imparted to you, you can't cover over it. It is who you are, it will come out. So persecution is not something that is maybe, it will come. So can I just tell you this? If you know it's coming, can that help you just not be afraid anymore? I know you might think, oh, that actually makes me feel more afraid. No, it should help you feel less afraid. When you begin to see what God will do through it, and that's the second part here, the second thing, we're gonna cover this quickly because we wanna come to the elements. The second thing that we see in this text, and I'm so glad for it, is that he doesn't just say you can expect persecution when you live in the world, follower of Jesus. He says you can expect effective witness. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, he's just saying, if you're gonna represent me, this is what's gonna happen. You're, you and I, I, I'm the master, you're the student, you're the, you're the servant, therefore they'll persecute you. But then look what he says. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So what he's doing there is he's giving us a glimmer of hope. He's saying, it's not gonna be all persecution. Not everyone you come to and proclaim the name of Jesus to is gonna persecute you. Some will believe. 
Just as some have believed me, some will believe you. And then he follows that in chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, when he says, but when the helper comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The reason he's including that portion, because he's gonna go back and talk about persecution then after that in the next four verses, and he talks about persecution in the verses preceding that. Why does he take the pause to mention the Holy Spirit? Because he wants his disciples to know, yes, expect persecution, but also know that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna be bearing witness, and it's gonna cause that witness to be effective. People are gonna come to know Jesus, and it's gonna be incredible. So be bold. Don't, the, the, the answer to persecution is not go bury yourself in a hole. Don't go stick your head like an ostrich in a hole and think you're safe. You're not. We still see you. He's saying, don't do that. Be bold in witness, knowing that should the persecution come for that witness, the witness will only grow more effective because of the persecution. The witness will only go, grow more effective because of the persecution. One of the things I really love about that text is that it paints a picture of the Holy Spirit's work where it says, the Holy Spirit will bear witness and so will you. Now, when I speak the name of Jesus, when you speak the name of Jesus, who is, who is empowering us to do that? It's the Holy Spirit, right? So in a sense, the Holy Spirit's bearing witness through us. But John here, Jesus, separates the Holy Spirit's work from our work as if to say, the Holy Spirit's gonna do more than just speak through you. He's gonna be moving around all the time bearing witness about me in ways that you don't even see and know. I love that. Because it means anywhere I show up, who's already been there? God's spirit, just working, preparing, tilling the soil, just at work. I love that. It means I never step into a place and it's never a cold call. I never walk in and start talking to someone about Jesus as if nothing's been going on there before already. The Holy Spirit has already been there bearing witness through dreams, through visions, through revelations, perhaps just through convicting the heart of sin and righteousness. We're gonna see that next week as we look at John chapter 16 and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness. So church, family, can I tell you this? Even while we expect persecution in the world as followers of Jesus, we also know that we will bear witness. And as we bear witness, we'll do so effectively. And that should grip our hearts and cause us to say yes. Yes, that's how I wanna spend every day. I wanna spend every day effectively witnessing for the king. It should move us and motivate us. So we don't have to be afraid we don't have to be afraid. The persecution will bear fruit for the kingdom and we live for that kingdom because we're citizens of that kingdom and not citizens of this one.